I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Jordan Osserman. Dr. Osserman is a Wellcome Trust Research Fellow in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck University of London and a trainee in clinical psychoanalysis with the Site for Contemporary Psychoanalysis. He is currently working on a book entitled Circumcision on the Couch and is also beginning work on the team of Waiting Times, a multi-stranded research project on the temporalities of healthcare. His writing has been published in outlets such as Transgender Studies Quarterly, the Journal for Cultural and Religious Theory, and Blunderbuss Magazine. And he is a host on the podcast, New Books in Psychoanalysis. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Tripart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon. That's P A T R E O N.com forward slash V A N E S S A 23 C A R L. Links to everything can be found in the text that accompanies this podcast episode. Your support is greatly appreciated. I mean, I guess I had imagined you would ask me, so I might as well start with this, like how I got interested in the subject in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, I guess there's a there's a couple sides to it. I think that the the first time that this all the subject of male circumcision probably occurred to me as anything like interesting and worth thinking about um, was when I was probably about 16 years old, and I went to a conference um, that Amnesty International was holding, um, and I was kind of involved in them as like a young human rights activist. Um, and they had like this session where members could vote on issues that the organization should campaign on. And I remember there was this kind of like interest group of like mostly men who were very, very angry and who like didn't really seem like they were otherwise members of the organization or participated in anything else, but they were there in particular to try and convince Amnesty to recognize male circumcision as a human rights violation. Um, and they called it male genital mutilation. So they were kind of using the language Amnesty uses for what they call female genital mutilation. And they had all kinds of pamphlets and literature and stuff. And they were kind of, you know, and I I sort of learned that they do this every year. They go to the conferences and they kind of push this agenda. Um, And I, I suppose it interested me both because there was a kind of like passion that they had for the issue that I didn't really see elsewhere. And I had just never really thought about circumcision as anything problematic until that point. I mean, like, as you know, as a fellow American, it's kind of, especially, um, you know, 20 years ago or so, it was something that um, was just done routinely and no Mm -hmm. one thinks about it or takes it as, you know, something to think about ethically. So I don't know, somehow that kind of percolated in my mind all the way through to me becoming, deciding to pursue like a PhD and write a dissertation. And and I guess since I was living, now I'm living in London and I was doing, you know, studying in London, um, I think maybe another aspect of it was being in the UK where circumcision is not practiced routinely um, and realizing that here it's kind of thought of as a, tends to be thought of as like a religious mark, you know, it's, it's the Jewish and Muslim communities that do it. Um, and interestingly, I think one other angle to it was also learning that lots of Jews, like, who don't necessarily practice the religion at all, who are quite secular, including both in the UK and the US, um, nevertheless felt like, you know, if they were going to have a son, um, they would, they would feel the need to circumcise them, or they would at least have some kind of conflict about it. People who wouldn't necessarily think twice about keeping kosher or celebrating the Sabbath, circumcision somehow becomes a thing, whether, whether they do it or not. 
so somehow all of those um, issues made me think that there was because I was interested in psychoanalysis and that was kind of what I'd been studying that that there was something psychoanalysis could say about this phenomenon um, so yeah that I guess that's how my kind of work on the topic all began and what did you find <laughs> and what, yeah and what did I find <laughs> um, so I I realized that circumcision is kind of a um, is is in some sense kind of integral to world history <laughs> um, at least that's the kind of argument that I make and particularly to kind of what we call you know judeo-christian identity or the judeo-christian west um, although of course there's a whole the circumcision is very important to the Muslim world, world as well um, so I I suppose what, what I ended up doing was I kind of um, split my dissertation into these different kind of case studies uh, and um, and I'm currently kind of reworking this into a book uh, but so one portion of it was focused very much on these um, contemporary kind of controversies and I can speak a bit about that um, and then another portion was kind of um, focused on how circumcision became thought of as a medical procedure in the first place um, and that was kind of I learned in the 19th century and it had to do with a lot of Victorian kind of morals around um, sex and purity um, and then there was another section that was looking at how circumcision was abandoned by Christianity and how in a sense um, the that that Christianity kind of replaced the Jewish ritual of circumcision with baptism um, with a kind of spiritual ritual that doesn't leave any physical marks and that has a lot of implications for uh, the difference between the two religions um, Christianity being a kind of universal religion that is um, isn't about uh, the the some would argue isn't necessarily as connected to the body as the Jewish religion is um, yeah, so I mean, I could talk a little bit about going back to the, my interest in the kind of anti-circumcision activists. That tends to be the thing people people find the most well, interesting. It's really interesting because, like you said, like I never thought about it until I met you, you know. And then I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, Jordan's working on circumcision. What's that about? And then I, like I said, you recommended to watch this film. I didn't even, I had never heard of this in intactivism. Yeah, um, what did you think I, of I just didn't even know that all of this existed. What did you think of the film? Uh, it was well. It was really intense, and like you said, it, it definitely seemed to me like he was anti-circumcision for sure. Uh, the filmmaker, it seemed to be a lot more like arguments on that side, and then the yeah. other side, you know, it was like the old doctor. So it was like the old man that's still like stuck in the past is like arguing for it, and then everyone else is on the other side, you know. And I was interested on like what this means to like cut the body in that way or like mark a person, you know. I guess because yeah. we're psychoanalytically inclined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So there's this Netflix documentary. I think it's called American Circumcision. Yeah, and he interviews all of these anti-circumcision activists and I guess what I find most incredible about it I mean I guess there's two sides to it on the one hand I think there is an ethical debate that people should have about whether we should do this to, to children and particularly um, you know if if the science on whether it's hygienic or not is kind of or, or helpful or not is a bit uncertain you know there's a real debate to have about whether this is worth doing but then the kinds of claims that anti-circumcision activists often make can be really preposterous and they don't really get analyzed like critically so um, you know people who talk about how they feel that circumcision has rendered them completely impotent that it's completely removed sexual sensation I mean interestingly you see it in the documentary like a few people end up having these quite weirdly like heteronormative arguments where they say things like oh the you know the female anatomy is like not equipped to handle like a circumcised penis and it's more painful for them and like uh you know sex is much more natural between a man and a woman when he has a foreskin like i guess what i started thinking when i was reading a lot of this stuff um is that you know once you realize how much of it doesn't have any grounding in any kind of like empirical study but is basically just like uh, people's associations to what circumcision has done to them, you kind of realize that there's all of this fantasy around like the phallus 
that's like deeply kind of woven through this. And particularly one of the things I argue is like, because um, for Americans, it's a procedure that's done um, before you have any real conscious memory, it tends to be done right out of the hospital. It's a real like kind of site for like um, generating these types of fantasies and um, kind of allows you to imagine like that all of the things that might be going wrong in your life or all of the ways in which you feel like you might not measure up um, that uh, you can kind of blame them on this, you know, historical incident um, that you have no memory of. Right. But then on the other side of that, there might be some sort of like trauma associated with like having had this done before you had any like conscious way to process any of it. And then like, you know, all these men feeling like they might have like anger or distrust of like the general world or those kinds of things that they might be acting out. And then these other medical ideas going the other way, like saying that they should go and circumcise everybody in Africa because they're trying to help prevent HIV. That having worked in an HIV clinic for five years, I thought that was a really strange argument. Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because in a way, um, so yeah, on the one hand, as you're saying, it touches on all these, you know, interesting, important issues around consent and like, what does it mean to have had something done to you that you had no kind of consent over? And then also, yeah, what I kind of realize, and I feel like you see it in the documentary, is that in a sense, like, no one manages to say something about this issue without having some slightly crazy libidinal investment in it, whether they're for it or against it. So the people who are against it, I'm quite critical of, and I think they can often be quite anti-feminist in various ways. But then the documentary also features a number of people who are really intent on promoting circumcision as a supposed way to prevent HIV AIDS or any number of other diseases. And they also have this like weird attachment to the procedure that goes beyond any kind of medical explanation. Mm. For Um, sure. Yeah. And, and that goes all the way. I mean, that was um, what I kind of looked at in my in my work also is that um, in the 19th century, uh, the first doctors who thought circumcision was kind of a good idea medically were promoting it because they claimed that it could cure all of these kind of mysterious ailments, which actually sound quite similar to what Freud might have called hysteria. Like so they would have there are these case studies that I kind of dug up from the archives of boys who would have um, bedwetting issues or who would have like unexplained seizures or paralysis. And somehow these, uh, you know, a set of doctors came up with this idea of like, well, maybe if we circumcise them, that will solve the problem. Um, And they, they tended to believe it had to do with the boys masturbating and circumcision would stop them masturbating and therefore they would no longer faint or have seizures or whatever it was. Um, and similarly, you see there in, in the kind of writing um, that they produced, like this weird kind of libidinal attachment to the procedure that goes way beyond, you know, any kind of empirical way of thinking about it, but is like, it's evoking something unconsciously. Um, yeah. Do you think there's a difference, like, if you, if it's done, like, in a tradition, like, like they have the structure of, like, the Jewish tradition or something like that? versus like people that are just have it because this is what we do in America, but there's not really any like identity around it or history around it or anything like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good question because like I do think there's a difference. I think um, I think that maybe part of the reason that today secular Jews um, and secular Muslims probably to a certain extent, although I'm not as familiar, uh, I didn't kind of speak to as many, um, but the reason that they feel like they need to do it, that, you know, or at least they, they feel conflicted over whether to circumcise their sons, if not, they absolutely feel that they ought to, is that it kind of provides this sense of some kind of stable identity or some kind of identity that's rooted in the body. Um, and particularly, I think it might resonate with, you know, people often say like, you know, we live in these kind of unmoored times, everything is insecure, no one really feels sure of who they are anymore, no one belongs to a community. And there's this idea that maybe if you kind of cut the body in some way, that that can provide some kind of communal identification that we're otherwise lacking. So I think, um, but I don't know if that really works. I think it's kind of illusory. And I think probably, like Renata Selekel, the Lacanian based in Slovenia, has written a little bit about this um, in relation to female circumcision, where she argues that, like, 
in older times, our relationship to authority was a bit different. And these kinds of um, cuts in the body really did establish some kind of communal like identity, kind of a relationship to authority. Um, and that uh, the times we live in now where there's kind of no longer this stable big other, quote unquote, um, these procedures don't really have the same kind of effect that they used to. Um, so, you know, it maybe once was necessary in order to initiate yourself into a community to have some kind of physical cut. Uh, but now we don't really trust, you know, community leaders or uh, religious authorities in the way that we used to as like having the final say. So I think, I guess the point is we're all kind of uh, suffering in a similar way in post-modernity, but we have different solutions to deal with it. Um, and circumcision is one of them. <laughs> we'll say more about that. Yeah. Say more about 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 that last point. Um, I guess I, what, what I'm trying to say is um, certainly not that we were suffering any less in earlier times. I'm not a reactionary who's saying we should go back to, uh, you know, tribal initiation rituals. Um, but simply that. Um, so one of the things I look at um, is this idea about um, the superego. And um, you may have seen there's like a lot of kind of uh, Lacanians influenced by Zizek and Lacan who talk about how um, in the times we live in today, um, the superego is no longer something that tells you to feel guilty for having sexual fantasies, like perhaps it did in Freud's time, but it's now this kind of force that demands uh, enjoyment, that basically um, people suffer today not out of a sense of shame that they're um that they're thinking naughty things necessarily although that's probably still true um but but also this sense of um there other people are enjoying more than i am um, other people have a better sex life than i do other people have access to pleasures that i don't um sometimes this manifests in racism like um you know this this group of people um enjoy in a way that i find disturbing so okay so the argument is yeah that that somehow this is a dimension of the superego today. And I think a lot of the anti-circumcision people um, often frame their complaint in terms of this idea that like my pleasure has been reduced because of this thing. And <clears throat> in a sense seem quite preoccupied with this problem of like, I'm not enjoying enough. Um, and uh, I think at the same time, even people who are for circumcision are framing it now in terms of um, well this will pr this will allow you to this will prevent you from having STIs so that you can have more sex um, or you can have better sex or whatever it is so it's kind of like the whole debate is is framed around this issue that I think is peculiarly of our time of like this kind of the super ego t you know making us feel like there's some issue with enjoyment and we're not doing it in the right way um, and circumcision ends up appearing as an answer to it in one way or another. Right, and it's literally having to do with the phallus. Yeah, Not yeah. Not just symbolically or imaginary, but yeah, literally. I mean, that, that was <laughs> the other thing about the topic, and is sort of how I like, you know, I try to argue that I'm doing both, it's both looking at circumcision psychoanalytically, but also using it circumcision to like understand something about psychoanalysis, because it's like, the whole theory of the phallus can be so confusing and opaque, and, and I, you know, I have problems with it. But um, circumcision really kind of like stages it uh, in a way because it's it's kind of a um, it's a cut in the imaginary, you know, like in the kind of image of the penis, as well as a kind of symbolic cut that kind of makes you part of something um, like it, it draws attention to the way in which, you know, the penis is not just a biological organ, but is something that has to be symbolized and like is connected to discourse and to um, to a cut. Right. So. Um, yeah, it, it's like a, it's a, it's like, I, I guess there's this funny thing of it both shores up the idea of the phallus as being something really important, but it also kind of undermines it in a way. Um, and so, yeah, people tend to think I'm quite obsessed with the phallus as a result. And I think that's, that's probably true. I mean, that's probably what I've learned about myself through this process of, of researching this. Although I also think it's kind of like on a, personal level somehow I, I i feel like i worked something through with this such that 
you know, once I manage to get the book out, I'm probably not going to write very much more about it. Like, uh, it's been interesting, but um, I'm going to have to move on because there's other stuff I want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's that's a really good point. It's the sight of like a real cut, an imaginary cut, and a symbolic cut all at the yeah. same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I wonder how it got constituted in the first place, like all those thousands of years ago. Yeah, I, I, it, what, another thing, I mean, that I found so fascinating when I was reading about the topic was how different tribes in different parts of the world independently came up with the idea to circumcise. Um, initially, it tended to be that there would be genital cuts for both um, men and women as some kind of initiation ritual. But it's like, you know, why would anyone think that's a good idea? <laughs> um, and let alone like multiple groups of people in different parts of the world who never spoke to each other. How did they come up with this? Um, I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, but although on that note, yeah, I mean, I did, I did want to add another thing that I kind of learned through this process was how, like you were saying, it's an imaginary, a symbolic and a real cut. And similarly, um, those questions, I guess, are connected to how psychoanalysis thinks about sexual difference. And another, like, paradox around circumcision is that sometimes it's seen as something that makes you a man because it, it you know, par- makes you part of this kind of fraternal order. Um, but then other times it's thought of as something that is kind of emasculating or makes you less of a man. Um, and uh, a lot of kind of in the 19th century, a lot of attacks on Jews, anti-Semitic kind of fantasy was around the Jew has a circumcised penis and so it's somehow more feminine or like lacking in relationship to a Gentile penis. Um, So also there's this weird kind of ambivalence of like um, at the moment that this cut happens, it simultaneously is masculinizing and feminizing. yeah, so it, it uh, somehow it feels like it touches on a lot on the heart of like some of the kind of fundamental issues that at least Lacanian psychoanalysis uh, explores. Yeah, and it's like you're you're submitting to the authority, but you're also like identifying and becoming the authority in some way at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a great book by Bruno Bettelheim um, on circumcision, oh. where he, uh, yeah, uh, what it's called. I can't remember the name now, but he, um, it's mostly him analyzing kind of tribal circumcision rituals, but it begins by, he was like talking, he's talking about his work in this, um, kind of school for disturbed children that he ran in Chicago. And, um, he talks about the inspiration for the book was discovering that like a group of like children, patients, boys and girls come up with this idea that, um, the boys should circumcise them should well no they should cut their penises it's not circumcision but they should like mutilate their genitals essentially um as part of like creating this little secret pact um and yeah they kind of come up with it spontaneously so it's you know it's quite bizarre and then he ends up saying that what this suggests is that maybe it's circumcision isn't just about an older authority like imposing it on a younger you know, initiate, but that it also can be kind of the the initiates themselves, the the men or the boys, like wanting to, in some sense, experience some kind of genital bleeding that they think that, you know, women do that they, that they'll never get to do. So Mm -hmm. there's this kind of envy of femininity um, that occurs not from authority, like top down, but as a kind of lateral thing. Um, Yeah. So that, that was a quite interesting, weird kind of interpretation that he offered on the ritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything I've read by him has been like really interesting and unique. Yeah, yeah. I then I saw some uh, New York Times article, old article about him and uh, apparently it turned out he was like quite an abusive person. I, oh, I don't no. remember the Yeah. He did some really bad things and I can't remember what they were now, but you know, that's often the case with the so-called great men. So <laughs> So what are the other things that you want to write and talk about after you're done with circumcision? Oh, um, well, um, I guess, I mean, one thing is my interests are now, uh, I'm, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm starting this clinical training. Um, and yeah, I'm just really fascinated and a bit terrified with what it's going to be like to not just like kind of use psychoanalysis in an academic sense, but kind of 
um, live it out in a clinical encounter. Um, so that's on my mind. Um, what led to the decision to go into training formally? Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I don't really know, which is probably a good, like uh, a, a good answer, maybe. Um, I, I, I've been an analysis for uh, like five or six years or something. Um, uh, and it's been quite a big part of my life uh, has kind of, I feel like, changed the way that I think and changed the way that I like kind of hear myself in a way. Um, so, you know, part of it is thinking, well, there's something in this that I think I've benefited from, which like, it would be nice to see if I can create that kind of space for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess there's some sense of like, uh, you know, I've always felt that being an analysis is, is crucial to doing the academic work I've done because I think these ideas really, you can't really engage with them unless you have some experience of them. So it's wanting to kind of take that to the next step, I guess. Um, yeah, and, and then there's a bit of curiosity and like envy of just like all these people I know are doing it, and uh, I, I want to see what what they get up to. I want to be on that side of the chair. Mm. So yeah, uh, I guess a lot of different factors. Yeah, um, I love psychoanalysis on on both sides of the chair and uh, and writing about it. But that's what I've been wondering lately. Um, with like uh, clearly, psychoanalysis is more prevalent in like academia than in the clinic as far as yeah. like psychology and I one I've been wondering like but are all the academics being analyzed or are they just using it theoretically or I'm sure there's both yeah yeah I don't know I mean a lot of them aren't and I you know I don't want to be one of these like I, I don't like the people there are some clinical you know psychotherapists psychoanalysts who think that all academic work is not real for some reason because it's not grounded enough in the clinic and I don't want to be one of those kind of purists but I do think it has an impact to like you know on how you engage with the theory if you actually you know can kind of see what it means to you in your own life um, I think also like I think there was like a wave of Lacanian psychoanalysis being trendy that's kind of passed and I think now the people who engage with psychoanalysis academically do tend to have some more involvement in the clinic um, because it's kind of like it's no longer cool to do it in the way that it maybe used to be so if you're going to do it it's because you have an actual commitment to it mm -hmm. yeah and I think like like you said there's always at like every conference or talk there's always this like people who are like well I'm a clinician and I'm talking about it that way and the other people are like well I'm talking about it theoretically this like divide and I'm wondering yeah. more like not about people doing psychoanalysis as an analyst, but as having had been in analysis themselves, because I think there really is something about uh, yeah. seeing all these theories. Like it's, I remember vaguely what it was like to like read about them and think I was understanding what Freud was saying and that sort of thing. But then when you see like how pervasive it is in your own life and how it's all played out, it's really quite. Uh, it's really interesting. Mm. <laughs> and I guess you must have transitioned to doing a lot more Skype analysis now, right? Or how, how's your practice yeah, kind of working? it's all over yeah. WhatsApp. Over WhatsApp? Yeah, uh, I'm like, doing WhatsApp because it's all encrypted and everything. And uh, it's good enough for Jared Kushner. It's good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and how are you finding that? like shift from face to face to yeah, digital. I think I mean I think both it definitely has like pros and cons, you know, like everything else. Yeah. And uh I was really not even going to do that as an option when I left New York. I really tried to refer all my patients uh and announcements to uh, people in New York, but I already had had a couple of patients that had moved away or like one that like is constantly like touring because of their job so they're always on the move that I was doing sort of the phone session thing with anyway um, and so I've only kept a handful like six or seven people um, which is actually like a nice manageable amount instead of having like 35 patients or 30 patients you know yeah. um, so it's actually much make, making my life more balanced um, yeah. between like patients and writing and, and other things to do in life uh, besides work and uh, yeah so it's been good and and I think all the people that wanted to stay with me like adamantly that were like I will not see anyone else um, they're all like in their 20s and you know 
the internet is normal. You know, they grew up with it. It doesn't seem like they have tons yeah. of friends that they just talk to online uh, that they never have even met in person. <laughs> so, you know, when you think yeah. about it that way, it's just kind of becoming a normal part of society. And that's actually one of the things I want to talk about at the um, conference that we have next summer is like, using technology because now I'm more open to the idea than I was before I left and also like seeing like I said before like how different the availability is and the access to like psychoanalysis in New York versus in Stockholm and you know if, if we can get psychoanalysis out to more people using technology then I think that's good because there's mm. a lot of people that live places where there's no analyst or yeah. there's one analyst, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I was thinking also people who live in really small towns or villages maybe don't want to meet someone who lives in that community for analysis because, you know, word travels quickly or they might be worried that word travels quickly and yeah. So. Yeah, that person might know their parents, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think that um, trying to rethink think the frame in a way that could be useful uh, to seeing to seeing more people using technology could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I should maybe also plug the the next project I'm working on. Yes, please. Um, because uh, my um, colleagues would be pleased with me for doing that, um, and I and I'm excited about it as well. Uh, so I, I've just been offered this kind of postdoctoral research position in psychosocial studies at Birkbeck, uh, which is part of the University of London. And um, it's part of this project called Waiting Times. And it is the larger project is looking at kind of what it means to wait for healthcare in different senses, whether that's historically about like waiting lists on the National Health Service in the UK or um, more kind of um, psychoanalytically in terms of the experience of waiting. Um, and what I'm hoping to do, we'll kind of see how all the ethical approval processes pan out, but what I propose to do is some work with um, this unit in the in London that treats um, kids who are thinking about transitioning. Um, so children who have some issues related to their gender identity uh, go to this place called the Gender Identity Development Service. Um, and they get evaluated and assessed, and some of them get placed on um, uh, drugs that like halt puberty. Um, and the idea behind this is that it supposedly gives them some time um, before their body goes through all of these changes to think through whether they really want to do this transition. Um, and they've been they've been under a lot of public controversy this center, and that's why I'm actually not even sure if they'll be willing to let me speak to them because they're kind of um, a bit nervous about any further exposure. Um, but uh, what I'm hoping to do is kind of like look at all of this through the lens of waiting um, and with a kind of psychoanalytic theoretical hat on, I guess, in terms of like what what actually are these, uh, what, what, what are you supposed to be waiting for? Like when you're when you're getting therapy related to your gender, when you're on these puberty blockers, when you're on a waiting list, hoping that you're going to be seen, like what is happening in this period of waiting and how does it like uh, affect, yeah, what, what it is you think about your gender and also kind of what is the relationship between gender itself and temporality? Um, because, you know, in psychoanalysis, like um, gender isn't something that you're born with. It's something that is kind of secured or maybe you attempt to secure through, you know, the period of your life, through these Oedipal identifications, through a whole series of events. Uh, there's, you know, a retroactive theory of time and psychoanalysis, so the present can influence how you think about the past. All of this stuff around time that's really big. Um, so I'm hoping to kind of bring that to, I guess, the, the trans children debate in some sense. Uh, and I, I guess the listeners won't be able to hear, but I put trans children in, in quotation marks because, um, yeah, I don't know. It's all kind of, uh, obviously there are trans children, but there's this, um, you know, it's a hugely contentious issue. Um, and, uh, and, and I guess an issue that, um, like understandably, uh, trans activists can be quite hesitant to think too, th to, to engage too theoretically on the issue because there's so much transphobia out there that there's a worry that if we explore the why too much, we might invite ourselves to lots of hostile criticism. Um, but I hope in a very sympathetic way that I can kind of uh, do a bit of that theoretical work around 
what is going on when a young person, you know, feels that the gender that they identify with is not, doesn't match up with the body that they live in. So, yeah. And that, I mean, that's one of the things that I had noted when I was thinking about the worker's circumcision was, of course, like, uh, children born intersex and this whole phenomenon yeah. that's happened in the past with them, um, you know, the doctor deciding what the child's gender is going to be uh, at birth, you know, with yeah. no, no consultation, sometimes even with the parents and definitely not with the child in mind. And then the argument against that, of course, and like letting the person develop as they develop and decide what they are, who they are, what they want to be as they as they grow up. Yeah, it's a really, yeah, it's a, that's a really good kind of connection and um, actually something that I'm going to have to develop a bit more, I think, when I revise this work for, into a book, because that was something the people who kind of examined my PhD at the end, my dissertation pointed out was I should put a little more thought into that, those sets of issues. But actually, um, one thing we're saying is um, I published this article a little while ago in Transgender Studies Quarterly, um, looking at um, the case of David Reimer, who is more popularly known as the, is, it's known as the John Joan case. Uh, and um, lots of people who take kind of intergender studies classes will encounter it because um, Judith Butler writes a famous essay about it. But anyway, uh, the story is to do with a, a boy who is, um, because of an injury to his penis, uh, is um, the doc a, a psychiatrist, John Money, basically convinces this boy's parents that they can raise him as a girl and um, just never tell him what happened. And, and then he will live a normal life as a woman. Um, and it all kind of goes horribly wrong. And um, the boy is very unhappy, um, like in, in his life. And eventually his parents confess what's happened when he's, I think, around 13. And he decides to kind of transition back into being a man um, and then it has a very kind of tragic ending and ultimately um, he commits suicide um, but uh, interestingly in a way this the, the accident which doesn't often get remarked on that much is to do with circumcision um, so mm -hmm. the initial um, issue is uh, the, the boy is um, he has a twin and the two the both brothers are set to be circumcised and then this first one, um, something goes wrong with this machine that they use. And so his penis is quite badly burned. And they decide not to circumcise the second one that day. Um, and yeah, so in this, in this strange sense, like um, this case that has everything to do with questions of intersex and gender and doctors deciding on your behalf what kind of gender you're supposed to be, also all of that also intersects in this instance with kind of a circumcision and with like you know, who should decide what happens to your penis, essentially. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I agree with you, I guess, to your point, is there is a lot of overlap on these questions. Yeah, it's interesting how it intersects, and like, who, yeah, who's the authority over who you're going to be yeah. in general? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, who, who is the authority? And, um, I mean, I'll, you know, I, you know it, I guess it should be, you know, you, I do believe that you should be the authority over your own body, absolutely. But um, but it's complicated because, um, yeah, you know, society has an influence on you. Your parents have an influence on you. Like, who's to say that necessarily um, some kind of uh, procedure that's done on your body uh, by your parents is any better or worse than your parents kind of um, making you go to church every Sunday uh, or be part of some, you know, particularly horrific ideological belief like supporting Trump um, you know what what causes more long-term emotional damage uh, it's hard to decide and then that goes back to your question of waiting what does it mean then like uh, if you were going to wait and let your boy decide if he was going to be circumcised when he's 12 or something maybe then he would be like why didn't you just do this yeah, yeah. You to me earlier before, it, you know, it would have been less painful then. Uh, that is, um, there is this funny, like, paper by this ethicist who who makes that exact argument, who says that Orthodox Jews Jews are ethically justified to circumcise their children because those kids are going to want to be circumcised when they grow up, and they're not going to want to do it then because it's much more painful. So it's the right thing to do. But then, you know, that really presumes that you know what your kid is going to want. Mm -hmm. 
and and obviously you know that might not turn out how you expect it to mm-hmm. yeah what i've learned in psychoanalysis is that there's there's no solution yeah <laughs> it, um, when you were speaking to todd mcgowan and i was like yeah i guess that's kind of it isn't it just, just no solution <laughs> we yeah. all do our best <laughs> yeah i mean we, there's no solution but then yeah we we nevertheless try to find one so it's kind of like how do you live with there not being a solution that's the question yeah yeah i remember uh, i remember one uh session that i had where uh someone was like i got the job that i want and the guy that i want and i live in new york and i have all the things that i want and i still feel this way like what what do i need to do (laughs) it's just like (laughs) Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Stop there. That'll be uh, 100 euros. <laughs> exactly. It is interesting, though. I was in London for just like a short time over the summer for a wedding. Um, but even in the cab, there's this huge uh, debate over the, the trans children. Like it was on the radio. Oh, people yeah. really, really passionately screaming about it, against it. And then yeah. uh, kind of making fun of and belittling the activists uh, yeah. who are trying to help these kids. You probably were here. At, there have been a few like flashpoints, and I think there was one around LGBT pride and a group of um, lesbian anti-trans activists who like disrupted pride to protest um, transgender right. issues, basically. Yeah. The turfs. Yeah. The TERFs, exactly. They have quite a big presence in the UK. I think more than in the US, in a, in a sense. I mm-hmm. don't quite understand why. There's, like, different histories of feminism, I think, that's led to this. But, like, for example, the, the Guardian UK ran a piece that kind of gave the TERFs some airtime and kind of considered their arguments and said we have to balance them with the arguments of trans activists. And then the Guardian US basically said, this is bullshit, this is transphobic, why are you ceding any ground to them? So, yeah, it's interesting. There's this kind of cultural divide. Yeah, that whole thing in itself as well, of this uh, journalistic ethic that apparently is around now, where you have to, like, give equal time to all sides of the argument. I don't know when that started, but... Some sides of the argument, like like one of my friends, uh, yeah, one of my friends was like, well, if you go to medical school and your teacher's trying to teach you something and you're arguing whether or not germs exist, then really we don't need to listen to your argument because if you're at this point, you should know that germs exist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to at some point draw a line. (laughs) Where do yeah, where does the bar go down to? Yeah, (laughs) you get this with climate change or climate emergency, right? right? That's the one that it's like why should we be giving airtime to people who are just peddling lies right i think that the earth is only like six thousand years old it's like yeah clearly that's not true <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. move forward <laughs> yeah i think it's yeah it's particularly there's a unique version of it in the uk because the bbc has this like public um mandate where they have to consider like all sides of the debate but how they interpret that, you know, varies. So I think they've come under a lot of criticism now for for interpreting it as like, yeah, we, we need a for and against, like for fighting global warming and against fighting global warming. And, and people are saying, no, that, that doesn't, that's not what objectivity means, you know. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And then the other thing I want to make sure to ask you about, because you host podcasts too. Yeah. For new books in psychoanalysis and yes. anyone that listens to this should be listening to new books in psychoanalysis and i recently listened to your um talks with amy allen and mari ruti which were great oh thank you i love speaking to them they're both so amazing aren't they yeah and then the reading lacan's decree where you had all three editors Stane yeah Derek cook and callum neal on at the same time which i was a yeah. little envious of <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> you shouldn't be because it was quite like confusing to do a three or like yeah three-way interview okay um, well it didn't seem you recently that way spoke to derek right i spoke to derek yeah, and stain and then callum is hopefully coming up soon oh great yeah um yeah but thanks for plugging it yeah i'm really enjoying doing that podcast that was like that's been my first foray into it and it's i think the thing is like um i mean you probably feel similarly like when I read a book by uh, anyone, but by a psychoanalyst, I always think, oh, like, I wish I could ask them this question. And, you know, I have all these fantasies of what I could say to them. So 
get doing this new books and psychoanalysis podcast, I, I get to actually ask them those questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have it now in mind that I want to interview everyone who wrote a chapter for the Reading Lacan's Decree. So that will uh, probably take uh, a few years, just like oh it took God. them a few years to put together. You stole my idea. Uh. <laughs> no, great. <laughs> I, was, I had the same idea. I was like, oh, what about like doing this kind of Ecree po- podcast? Maybe we should do it together. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you could totally uh, interview I, some of I'd them. I'd love to. Yeah. And you can put it on the, uh, do you want to put on the rendering thing that's our platform that yeah, already exists? Yeah, yeah. We, should, we should talk about you it some more. You can be my but, guest um, host. Yeah, because I yeah I think it's a great idea, and and I literally had thought the same thing of like, oh, what if each episode was about an Akri, and then you talk to one of the experts on it? Yeah, doesn't it sound? It's a kind like of nice it? format, isn't it? I know, it's so dreamy. Yeah, <laughs> to <laughs> us too, at for least. For a really particular group of like <laughs> nerds. <laughs> it's so dreamy. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Jordan Osserman. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Tripart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23-C-A-R-L. Links to everything can be found in the text that accompanies this podcast episode. Your support is greatly appreciated. We are born into a story, an already existing narrative. Even before we are born, our we're changing makes us feel as though this is close to us, the way our spiritual be is being regarded, so specifically that the person that we are working on developing now is not getting accepted so readily outside world to be perceived as siblings. For a very long time now, we've been talking about a couple of characters that we'd like to grow into when we're older. It was that on my own I bring, I think, probably my ability to sort through, then have one of us, you know, whichever one has the stronger personality, devour the other. And that one person would sort of be a mimic of the other. But to be it, we think it through. That is supposed to be the idea of two people working towards the same goal. I couldn't do it alone. And it would be helpful, expression is a good thing. Or individuality. This is how I'm choosing to exercise my individuality, to join forces with another. Screaming a while ago, I might have come to that point again where I have to give more than I have. It was a real natural sort of instinct for me to resist giving, to step back from our experiences and take a look at our arguments or the when we begin to break down this system, push boundaries, surpass borderlines, and transgress limits. Representation of my spirit and one that was more beautiful and more aesthetically pleasing was more accurate. I mean, I could follow the judge appearance, family and society, have ideas of who we will be, what we will do, how we will succeed, and what trials we may face, all before we have even left our mother's body. 
Released has a heavy performative aspect, which should be essentially malleable, not only varying from person to person, but evolving over a person's lifespan, from situation to situation, or, oh absolutely, it has been very relaxing to feel as though my external appearance reflects my internal thoughts and desires. It's usually rewarding. I even more to have the support from the people on the outside. There's a lot of friends who may be conceptually inclined and they think that giving up your ego person of. Fortunately, I think that this other person is the finest person I've ever known and one of the most morally refined so that it makes it vary who we are and then treating us in a certain way. And it's helpful in that way because we are both receiving some of the same sensory information from deeply in love with my partner. But I have to say that I've stopped looking in the mirror so much. I don't know how relevant this is. I don't bother with it. But when those that seal versus those that remain open, or rather, unable to close, we may even consider the pores of the skin to be countless numbers of orifices, tiny mouths opening, assignment of gender to children born intersex, and what catastrophic repercussions this often has. Yet rather than exalt the hermaphroditic, as has been done in times past, we be like this cute couple that dresses in identical clothes. We want to use our exterior to commence certain response from the outside world because we know ourselves and the world via our bodies, especially through our orifices, as these are the spaces where we exchange inside and out, ingest and discharged, are penetrated and expelled.